This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Tamara Nice. Dr. Tamara Nice is Project Director of Data and Society's Algorithmic Impact Methods Lab, where she is also a senior researcher. For the 2023 and 2024 academic year, she's a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. Before joining Data and Society, she was lead researcher at Green Software Foundation, director of developer engagement on the Green Software team at Intel, an assistant professor of media studies and director of gender and sexuality studies at the University of San Francisco. Tamara holds a PhD in media, culture, and communication from NYU and is the author of Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. In her spare time, she's a volunteer with Tech Workers Coalition. Hi, Tamara. Hi, Deb. So, Tamara, we're talking in a week where Congress just introduced a landmark bill that would move the government toward developing standards that would measure and report the full range of AI's environmental impact, as well as one that would create a voluntary framework for AI developers to report environmental impacts. This legislation, just to give a bird's eye view, also requires an interagency study that would aim to investigate and measure both the positive and the negative environmental impacts of AI. Can you talk a little bit about the legislation? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, we were really excited at Data and Society to hear about this bill because it is a bill that really calls for a very robust form of socio-technical research. So one of the problems with measuring the environmental impacts of AI is that it's actually quite hard to do, particularly if you're trying to measure impacts around every single part of the AI supply chain. So if you think about the fact that, you know, the, the kind of form of AI that we usually think about might be the thing that we interact with directly. So if you're thinking about ChatGBT, you're thinking about maybe the energy used to sort of prop up that interaction that you're having with it. But behind that, there's a whole supply chain that has to go into the manufacturing of AI, which also requires the manufacturing of all the hardware it relies on, including chips and the, the raw earth minerals that are needed to make the the chips possible in the first place. So really thinking about all of the different sort of effects that AI production and use can have around the world is something that, you know, a lot of technologists and advocates have been wanting to measure for quite some time. And so having legislation that is really pushing for it and um, pushing for the creation of standards around measurement and reporting is incredibly important. You said that researchers have wanted this legislation for a long time. Why hasn't it happened already? What has gotten in the way? There are a few problems when it comes to sort of measuring the the environmental impact of something like AI precisely because of all of the very complicated global supply chains that are involved in its production. And so you really need to have a lot of coordination across different parts of the supply chain, different companies, different parts of the world. And so the bill is actually, you know, sort of relying on not just the EPA, but also the National Institute of Standards and Technology to really convene a group of people who are going to be able to identify the methodologies and standards that are needed to do this kind of measurement work. What's the history behind this legislation? What are the concerns or incidents or discoveries that led to this proposed need to assess the environmental impact of AI? With large language models in particular, so if we're talking about the kind of AI, like generative AI, that requires a large amount of compute, so you actually need specialized forms of chips in order to run AI efficiently. Um, You also need just a tremendous amount of powers. You need a lot of energy, electricity. You also need a lot of water. And so researchers from different corners of tech have been 
trying to figure out exactly how much energy or how much water is needed to train these large language models. And then other researchers have looked at what happens when a kind of AI is actually deployed. And so, you know, what is the sort of energy or water consumption associated with the use of AI, not just the training part. And so this is something that you know, has been a growing problem. So the, the entire ICT sector takes up a tremendous amount of energy. You know, we've probably, many of us have probably read some of the, the articles that have come out over the years about the effects of data centers on, you know, local areas, maybe that are already experiencing drought or that already have issues with their grid. Um, and so because data centers require just a tremendous amount of energy and can also pollute the areas in which they're located uh, while also sucking up a lot of water, it really becomes uh, an environmental justice issue at the same time um, that it's you know sort of a larger question of worrying about the control of resources and the potential cost in terms of carbon emissions. So you know this sort of robust, form of research that would actually kind of take all of these aspects into account about AI. It's actually just that AI is one small part of a much larger problem that's been going on for quite a long time. Um, and actually, we can look to things that happened even, you know, it may sound like a really long time ago, but the 1980s and looking at things that happened in the Silicon Valley region when it comes to the manufacturing of chips. And in some cases, toxic chemicals got into the local water supply in San Jose. And it took community members really coming together and fighting back against this sort of this sort of contamination and asking for more regulation to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. And so I think if we look at what's happening right now, we have an AI boom. And so it's a good time to really focus on making some changes through regulation and to get a better grip on sort of what the real environmental costs are. But again, this is not a new problem. This is not unique to generative AI. I know that this question is, as we say sometimes in academia, problematic. I'm aware of the problematics of what I'm about to ask, but I want to ask it anyway. When we're talking about AI and generative AI in particular, there's a whole range of problems, uh, concerns, issues, and dangers cited from the automation of labor leading to job loss and questions around uh, compensation for labor, copyright, um, questions about creativity, misinformation, the circulation of false information uh, using generative AI, to things like the changes to the structure of uh, how we get and source information online. Environmental impact is one that we maybe sometimes hear about on the sidelines, it's not typically included in some of, at least to my knowledge, some of these more mainstream issues. And the problematics of this question, I am aware, is uh, in trying to rank, right, or propose a hierarchy of problems. But where would this rank in the hierarchy of problems uh, uh, caused by AI? So I think that the environmental impacts of AI are very much connected to a lot of the labor problems. So I think part of what focusing on the environmental impact of AI can do for researchers and for advocates, for people who are trying to create policy, is that it really forces you to have a much more holistic view of what the potential harms of AI are. Uh, because you know, if we're talking about the entire AI supply chain, we really are talking about many different parts of the world. We're talking about many different kinds of work, many different kinds of labor exploitation that can be behind this. And often we're also looking at the, the trade-off, right? So between, you know, you could say, oh, a data center in this area is going to bring jobs. Well, and sometimes that isn't even true, right? Like uh, that might be the, the sort of line that that communities are given about bringing a, a large-scale data center to to the town, but then what are the what are the sort of downstream effects? And you know, what does it mean to be living next to something that is taking a bunch of power and taking a bunch of water? Or what does it mean to live next to something that is actually quite noisy? So I think a lot of people maybe don't realize the extent to which data centers um, are super loud. 
and can be really distracting for the people who are living around them. And then wondering also about the other sort of effects on health for people in the area and thinking about all of the sort of pollutants and other issues that are associated with it. And so I think when you're talking about sort of justice concerns, when you're talking about how particular marginalized communities are going to be impacted, you know, the question of labor um, and ethics sort of comes up in tandem with the discussion of the environmental impact. So I think if we really begin to think about entire communities, if we're thinking about effects on habitats and ecosystems and on other species as well as on humans directly, um, it becomes a way to really consider what the sort of full spectrum of impacts are going to be from AI. So what is that full spectrum of impact? The broader question here is how do you study AI's environmental impact? How do you measure it? What issues or areas comprehensively do you look at when you assess an environmental impact? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think a lot of researchers have spent time focusing on measuring the the carbon attached to training and maybe sometimes deployment. Some researchers have really pushed for more of a life cycle analysis. So they're really looking at the carbon cost of AI, not just in sort of the, the early training stages and deployment, but maybe even, you know, looking at sort of the potential of e-waste. So the fact that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of hardware that is also used in creating AI and deploying AI. And so um, that also tends to be built not to last very long. And so there's a there's a large amount of e-waste that also can be, you know, quite hazardous. And so one of the ways of measuring impact is sort of at that sort of very highly technical level when you're sort of measuring the effects of, say, the the sort of training and deployment itself. But then you're also measuring social impacts. And to do that, uh, you really do need to talk to communities who are being impacted. And so I think if we could find a way to kind of better you know, or at least more effectively bridge the the relationship between these sort of technical assessments of, you know, exactly how much carbon am I emitting when I'm training this model versus, you know, what are the sort of downstream effects that this particular system might have on communities in, you know, X location five years down the road. Um, I think, you know, it's incredibly difficult to measure, but you have to find a way of kind of putting these ways of framing the, the problem together. Because what I've seen from working in the tech industry, so I worked on a sustainability team at Intel. I was on what, what was called the green software team. And so a lot of that had to do with creating software that would help developers try to optimize the, the technology that they were building and using. And so if you're working in a lab, you're you know, a machine learning specialist, you're training a large model, maybe you choose to do that at a time of day when there's more renewable energy available on the grid. And so a lot of um, the focus of our research was about kind of making these choices more visible to developers and, and having them feel kind of empowered, you know, to know um, if I choose to do this at this time of day, it's a better choice for the environment, right? This is, you know, just a completely different way of framing the problem than you're going to get from talking to grassroots community groups who are, you know, calling for environmental justice. They're going to have a very different way of setting the terms of how to measure and report the environmental impacts of the technology. And so that that's sort of where um, the kind of work that we're trying to do at AIM Lab comes in because we're very much trying to figure out how to really reconcile sort of that more technical approach where the solution is sort of found through the technology itself um, and a tweak to the technology versus a more socio-technical perspective, which, you know, kind of understands the the technical side, but also tries to look at all of the social factors that are around it. I want to take a little bit of an advantage of having somebody on the show who has worked across so many different sectors 
you're at Data and Society now, which I would broadly consider a kind of public interest technology or civilly minded research center. You've been an academic. You are academically trained and have worked in uh, the Ivory Tower for a while. You've worked in industry as well. You've worked on the sustainability project that you just mentioned uh, in inside of a kind of industry-located organization. As far as I see it, there are so many fractures in terms of the ways that these different kinds of communities are thinking about or approaching the question of the benefits of AI versus the harms or mitigating harms while maximizing benefits or thinking critically about the problems that AI may introduce. What do these different sectors uh, maybe not know or what are what are the gaps in knowledge between these different sectors that maybe cause some of these tensions or, or fissures or maybe talking a- across purposes with one another or talking over each other? How do you see the kinds of um, silos in knowledge and maybe some of the uh, controversial or, or combative conversations that happen across these different industries, given your knowledge and experience in these very different areas? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I think, you know, the important thing, especially for doing this kind of research is to kind of have a, a very broad understanding of of the problem. You really want to be able to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. And what I have found sort of working across sectors is that often people just sort of define the problem in a different way. And the questions that they're asking are going to be quite different. But another point of contention is that people often are working on very different timelines. So, you know, for academic researchers, we often do have the luxury of time, right? Like we may feel pressed for time, but we're working on a very different sort of, you know, temporal scale than the sort of quarterly financial system of tech. We're not trying to rush to ship a product. We're not worried about selling anything, at least, uh, you know, in terms of a product, maybe we're selling ourselves to a degree. But I think, you know, part of the problem is that the expectations of how long a research project should take and what a useful or effective research project is, it's just very different. So conducting socio-technical research within a tech company, it's all about sort of what insights you're giving people and demonstrating return on investment for the people who are funding the research and also demonstrating the impact that you're having in a very real way. So are you directly influencing the design of a product? Are you helping the company sell more stuff? And often if you are not doing those things, um, then the research is not seen as being very valuable. And so trying to carve out space to actually do longer term research can be quite hard in tech itself. But what I think is really interesting is, and this is sort of the kind of work that we're trying to do at AIMLab, is we, you know, as sort of socio-technical researchers who are at an independent nonprofit, but who are trained academics, we can kind of lend our expertise to people in the tech industry who are working on a problem and who maybe want to have other perspectives incorporated into the work that they're doing. And so... I think some of the most interesting kinds of collaborations that you can have are when you really are sort of sharing perspectives with people who would ordinarily be addressing the problem of, say, you know, of climate impacts of AI through maybe decarbonization alone. And that's sort of the main way that they've thought about it. But if you can kind of help them to think through what the user experience of actually using the thing that they're building is, And then also get them to kind of engage with the idea of downstream impacts to other communities after the fact. It's just a way of changing the perspective and reframing the problem. And I feel like that that is something that can also really be helpful when you're trying to come up with policy. Because, you know, obviously there's always going to be a gap between policy recommendations and how that is actually implemented. And so for me, I find it really helpful having been in tech and knowing exactly how power operates, how hierarchies work, and what the expectations are, and knowing how to talk the language. And so you can have a sense of how policy will actually be taken up within an organization. 
And so that's also something that we're really trying to focus on at AIMLab is understanding the methodologies that people will need to have to, to carry out the work of algorithmic impact assessment in a variety of different organizations. It's say, you know, a startup versus a large scale enterprise or in a, in a city government or in, you know, other contexts that maybe don't get as much attention as sort of like the major tech companies like Google or something. Help me better understand the tensions around climate change, environmental harms, and AI. On the one hand, leaders in the tech industry often cite the ways that AI may be helping to solve or mitigating climate change and environmental harm by reducing inefficiencies in transportation, for example, finding ways to streamline the use of environmental resources and to reduce waste, or creating new technologies that either reduce dependencies on environmentally harmful products or counteract existing environmental and climate damage. On the other hand, we also hear news of the mass energy requirements of data centers that need to be powered and climate controlled, as you've just cited, at vast environmental and energy expenses in order to run uh, e-waste, which you've mentioned as well, and environmental damage caused by mining for the resources required to tech products. And I'll tack on to this that uh, when I talk to people in industry, particularly those who are developing and trying to sell products in AI, they talk about the fact that they're creating jobs that they themselves have 300 jobs that they cannot fill, that ultimately uh, AI will end up producing more jobs and that the task is then on the, the government typically, um, which as libertarians, they also don't want to fund, but we'll save that conversation for another time to provide retraining for these better and more thoughtful and larger number or quantity of jobs. And then we hear from people uh, who are critical of this or those who are studying it or those who are losing their jobs that this is a kind of labor crisis, um, that in fact, the kinds of trainings required in order to occupy these so-called new jobs that AI industries are inventing or providing in surplus require a particular set of skills that potentially many people may not have or that they may not want to have. And so I'm trying to think about this controversy, both in terms of the environment, as, as you've already brought in, the labor dimension of this. And then, you know, also think about, you know, the, I think the reasonable case that many of the jobs that are now gone are jobs that were not good for the environment and also that we don't particularly miss. The, the job that comes up quite a bit in this is, for example, the driver of the horse and buggy. People say, well, it's a kind of outdated technology and the horses were causing a lot of pollution and a lot of city sanitary problems. And we're better off even if the horse and buggy drivers are no longer able to exist in that occupation without that particular form of occupation to begin with. So how do you think about uh, assessing the benefits against the harms? And, and how do you go about trying to kind of uh, provide that as a impact assessment? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think if we take a step back and with a lot of the technology that's being developed in the name of sort of being climate friendly or also maybe actually uh, furthering goals of climate justice in some way. And so, okay, so thinking about maybe AI that could be used to help farmers, let's say, particularly in drought-stricken areas. And so the AI that kind of acts as a sensor, a way of detecting things, maybe AI that could be used for a kind of deforestation mitigation, or say, you know, helping keep the coral reefs, you know, healthy and using that to detect what's going on with the coral reefs. I, I think there are many kind of imagined uses of AI that would really, you know, be a boon to environmentalist efforts. But the question is, like, and this is this comes up a lot with the kind of experiences that we're having with AIMLab, is does the tech actually do what you think it's going to do? You know, does the tech actually behave in a way that the kind of people developing imagine that that will work on the ground? And how do the people who are expected to use it, how are they, how are they interfacing with it? Are they having a good time when they when they interact with the AI? Is it actually helping them with the work that they're already trying to do? Or is it creating new forms of work for them, new forms of maintenance and new, just new sort of things that they didn't have to do in their role before? And so one of the questions with especially technology that is developed to kind of serve a particular environmental purpose, 
you know, we hear a lot about sort of climate tech um, being the wave of the future. Maybe this is what will save us from climate change. Are these technologies being built through conversations with the people that the technology is actually expected to be helping? And so this is something that, you know, was sort of an ongoing problem within the tech industry where user experience is really kind of an afterthought, or maybe it's sort of tacked on towards the end of product development where you really just sort of do some usability testing and make sure it kind of works well enough most of the time. But to actually try to develop AI with the real input of the communities who in theory are going to be using and you know benefiting from the technology is something that really isn't done most of the time. And so I would say, you know, with a lot of the sort of climate-related technologies that are being put out on the market, the question is, you know, what does it look like in practice? And this is something that, you know, I think, you know, AI doesn't seem to attract the same kind of ire that crypto did because crypto uh, was very much viewed as a waste of energy, right? Like, People really, people really hated crypto pretty early on. And there were a lot of people talking about the fact that it was a scam and that it was, you know, just wasting all this energy for no reason. Everybody hated NFTs. Um, not everybody, but a lot of people, right? Um, it had a lot of detractors. And so, you know, the question is around kind of people making claims about what blockchain could do in terms of, oh, hey, if we tokenize trees in the Amazon, that will incentivize people through financialization, essentially, not to you know cut down all the trees. And so this idea that if you assign monetary value to things, to natural resources in the world, like trees, like whales, you know, that essentially it will help people uh, treat <laughs> treat the planet better, and that it would you know in theory also be helping like indigenous groups or something. And this was very often shown not to be the case. It was actually just a different form of exploitation. It was a different kind of scam. It was often sort of uh, just another form of colonialism because these things were not developed with the consent or the priorities of the, the people that it was actually trying to help. And so my fear would be that with a lot of the sort of climate-related AI products that maybe have good intentions, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be executed in a way that is actually helpful. I want to talk a little bit about algorithmic impact assessments specifically. You have a piece on algorithmic impact assessments, and you wrote in that piece, and I'll, I'll quote you here, that we know when people and ecologies meet technical systems, there will always be unanticipated consequences. So how do we identify and document a pushback against these sometimes ambient harms? Well, it, it's interesting because I think a lot of it does have to do with getting input from the people who are going to be impacted earlier in the process. So there are, you know, in a lot of the cases uh, that we've been involved with and a lot of the different sort of research projects and collaborations that we have going on right now, and I can't speak, you know, too specifically on them um, at the moment, but uh, I can say that often when you engage a community, uh, let's say a particular community in a location that may be particularly invested in knowing um, about how a technology is going to be used and might have some questions about the technology, it really is helpful to get their perspective because often they will raise issues or create scenarios for say a chatbot that the people creating the technology not just the technologists but also you know perhaps like advocacy groups and others who are really trying to do the right thing they may not see the big picture there might just be things that they miss and sometimes bringing in community members earlier in the process can really help you kind of see the potential problems before they become a really big problem. And so that, I think, you know, of course, there could always be unintended consequences even after you've really put in that kind of due diligence and you've really, you know, you've been as thorough and ethical as you possibly can be in engaging every potential, you know, community that could be impacted. And there may still be things that you'll miss, but I think it's, less likely that you would actually have a huge number of things that are as glaring if you actually put the time into 
fully assessing the technology before you deploy it, um, and maybe even before it's fully designed. Another issue is, you know, being able to document potential harms and raise red flags around things like privacy or bias that may not have been obvious to the developer, um, and then actually have time to give that input to the technical team. So another question is, you know, are you kind of just bringing community members in and you're just planning on sort of having a rubber stamp, but not really changing or modifying the tech in any way, I'm still releasing it. And so you really need to kind of encourage developers to build in time to really fully assess the potential harms and actually work on fixing those issues before the thing is released. There's also the question of, should the technology be developed and released at all? Um, and, you know, how do you sort of begin to weigh the the costs and the benefits? And that, that can be quite tricky. But in a lot of cases, you know, it may not be that the technology is actually doing the thing you want it to do at all. And there may be social problems that are happening that really require a different kind of solution that AI just actually has nothing to do with it. And so are there, is there a better way to actually allocate resources is another question. You know, should this thing be built at all? And I think that has to be an open question when you're sort of engaging in this process rather than people just sort of, you know, digging their heels in and putting a, a product out there that is probably, you know, going to end up wreaking havoc in some way. I want to push into this a little bit further because you've talked a little bit about identifying and assessing the harms Pushing back, I think, is is a different kind of problem. When you discuss the the possibility that an AI product developed to do one thing or fix one kind of social problem actually isn't doing it, then yes, you you have demonstrated that the product maybe doesn't work as it is supposed to work, or maybe there's a, a non-technical solution that might be better. Uh, but there's a kind of famous anecdote that I like to pull out to uh, discuss the the kind of problem with this. And you know, both of us live in San Francisco, so both of us are aware of the problems around homelessness in San Francisco, one of which is the problem of um, the sanitariness of the city. And uh, those of us who have traversed the streets of San Francisco recognize one particular sanitary problem, which is that uh, homelessness has left a situation where oftentimes there are human feces on the streets. Right. And an enterprising group of engineers in the Bay Area a couple of years ago came up with a solution to this problem, which was to develop AI poop picking up robots that could detect human feces on the street and then deposit it into a central repository, thereby cleansing the streets of human feces. And when uh, Dan Lyons, who was on the show many years ago, wrote for Silicon Valley, narrated the story, he said to me, you know what was actually the better solution to the problem? Public restrooms, public restrooms, right? It's not a technical solution. But of course, I think what, what Dan's comment in many ways misses is that the incentive is not just to solve the problem. The incentive for developers is oftentimes to recruit funding, to create a product, and then to sell the product and the company ultimately to get acquired or to get venture capital or to leverage that company into something larger. And so now we're talking about the kind of economics that undergird what gets developed and why, and the differences between creating a product that is marketable and sellable and solving the problem. Not always the same thing, right? So I guess the question here is, what does pushing back uh, actually look like? And how does one take the kind of uh, understanding documentation, identification, and assessments you're talking about and mobilize it into pushing back? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And it's actually my favorite part of this kind of work because I also do have a background as a labor organizer. And I think one of the most important aspects of this work is figuring out how to take any sort of empirical findings you have and then translate them into policy changes, into legal strategies, and also bargaining strategies. And so how can labor groups, for example, figure out how to document the, the harms that are happening? How do you sort of prove that something like algorithmic wage discrimination is happening within a gig app? And then how do you then take that information and effectively lobby and advocate for changes to policy? How do you advocate for sort of some kind of legal recourse? And so knowing sort of what 
what the sort of burden of proof would be, right, for any form of algorithmic discrimination. And so, you know, this is why, you know, as my colleagues found when they were looking at sort of the the um, New York City Local Law 144, which was requiring employers who were using automated employment decision tools to audit them in order to figure out if they were biased according to race or gender. And basically, you know, a lot of these laws are not necessarily actually effective because it's actually quite hard to even, you know, demonstrate this sort of this sort of bias. It actually is not always completely obvious. And it requires, in some cases, a real sort of technical knowledge or access that people don't have. And so one of the groups that we've been working with at, uh, at AIMLAB is the Workers Algorithm Observatory. And they're a group of researchers who are based at Princeton. Uh, but they're working with rideshare drivers who are trying to really conduct what they call a form of algorithmic inquiry. So from the Marxist uh, kind of uh, workers inquiry, which is a way that workers kind of document data about themselves. And it's a way for workers to really use data collection to understand their working conditions and how to change them and to kind of compare notes about what is happening to them on the ground. And so for, for rideshare drivers to be able to, you know, sort of, begin to share information with each other in a comprehensive way in order to really be able to get to the root of algorithmic wage discrimination so that it can be part of some kind of organizing strategy is incredibly useful. So another uh, part of this is really trying to figure out what forms of research and what kinds of research questions are actually beneficial to the people that you're trying to advocate for. I guess I want to push a little bit more into this because I'm thinking about you know what you brought up, which is the kind of power differential between those who create AI and those who are subjected to it. What options do we have to push back on tech companies broadly and AI companies specifically, uh, companies that have oftentimes accrued both tremendous power and wealth, who have set norms and standards that maximize their ability to profit and also to limit uh, their liability for the harms that they cause and who are developing products with a mass reach in ways that have become so deeply institutionalized and part of our environment that we don't really have the ability to alter their effect or to extract ourselves from them or to say no. And who also have massive lobbying power and money to fight lawsuits and whose wealth and profit often means that they can afford to pay fines that they may accrue from causing harm or violating a, a regulation while continuing to pursue business practices that provide profit as normal. Um, since the profit that they would get from creating the product and, and, and distributing it and deploying it oftentimes exceeds massively any penalty, financial or otherwise, that they might accrue from violations. Right. I, and I think this is this really gets to the root of the problem. And I can kind of tie that back a little bit to the environmental concern of AI as well. And so the fact that you really just have a handful of companies that completely control the production and use of, of large scale AI right now is quite, quite frightening. And so, you know, in order to have access to the technology, in order to do the kind of work you want to do, you really need to be tied to just a handful of companies and very elite research universities. And I, I think this sort of larger problem of, you know, how much control over people's lives should tech companies have? I mean, this is something that I obviously also write about in, in my book, where I'm really sort of grappling with the fact that platforms have an outsized amount of control over how people are memorialized and over how they're able to mourn as more and more people sort of use various social media platforms and other digital assets in order to um, maintain relationships with the dead or to try to create a kind of legacy for themselves. And, you know, I, I actually don't know if a lot of the sort of uh, regulation that we have on the, the immediate horizon is really going to be enough to to change that power dynamic. I think we would really need to think about the production of technology. We would need to really think about the system that we live in and change it in a much more radical way. And am I suggesting that we would need to, you know, basically stop 
um, a model of endless growth where profits and the well-being of shareholders is held up above the the welfare of everyone else on the planet? Like, yes, <laughs> I think we would need to kind of radically rethink and, uh, you know, reformulate the ways that we think about what a, a successful sort of um, product or a successful company looks like. But I'm not sure if I have a whole lot of hope of that happening. And so I think <laughs> until we have some sort of really massive structural change, the best that we can do is sort of exert pressure from different areas. And so I think it is actually important to have people working from within tech companies who are pushing for some kind of change. I think you do need people inside who understand how power works internally and who are, you know, at least close to the machine in that way. Um, I also think that you need policy changes and pressure from grassroots organizations, advocacy and civil rights organizations, legal advocacy groups, and other sort of labor organizers. And I think you do need also academic researchers who are able to sort of lobby critiques of of tech and sort of these systems a bit from from an outside perspective. But you really need kind of all of these things to work together in tandem. And you certainly need the input from the communities who are going to be most impacted, which is often even, you know, within sort of the the more you know, participation-based imaginings of impact assessment or thinking about, you know, sort of the power of technology, it still is sort of a problem because the the company or sort of the the people who are attempting to bring communities in, so like, for instance, us at AimLab, we're still kind of setting the terms, right? Like, it isn't really, you know, we're sort of helping perhaps give marginalized people a platform but the the power dynamics are still a little bit off, right? And so I think really thinking about how we can kind of collectively have more power over how technology is produced and used, that that is what ultimately we need to have happen. I want to dig in a little bit into this idea of harm, um, because sometimes when we talk about harm, we talk about intentional harm. Sometimes we talk about harm as a unfortunate byproduct or an unintended byproduct of a certain technology's deployment. Can we or should we make distinctions between different kinds of ways in which tech products cause harm between, for instance, a product that causes harm in unintended ways versus products that are released and cause harms in ways that are predictable but willfully ignored? Now, sometimes I have this conversation with somebody and their argument is that if we look more closely, almost always these so-called unintended consequences are actually very predictable but that either they are overlooked in favor of profit or progress, or that these, quote, unpredictable consequences were the result of negligence uh, caused by overlooking or excluding already marginalized populations, or alternatively, that the value system of tech production that already exists disregards the idea that the harm caused by the product is actually really harm to begin with. I'll give you an example of what I mean by the last part, the idea that something will take over jobs or something that will disconnect us from our immediate environment is not isn't actually a harm because it is providing efficiency and in the context of this product's developers efficiency is the value to maximize and maybe enjoying our environment or uh, doing things in unpredictable ways because there isn't an algorithm guiding us about what exactly to do isn't actually a harm to begin with, right? Some of us might think that the removal of the incidental or the coincidental from our environment, um, the capricious from our environment might be a harm for those who are developing these technologies and algorithm that has a greater ability to predict and direct us in certain ways uh, might be a benefit and the loss of that be a harm at all. I do think that there are instances in which tech products cause harm as the result of bad actors using the product in unintended ways or ways that a technology can go wrong despite the intentions of the creators. But I am also aware that the majority of harms that I think we're talking about are harms that come even as good users are using the product as it was intended to be used. How do you think about the idea of unintended consequences when it comes to what you see in tech culture? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And this is why I think there, we really need more historians to be in these spaces. I'm always very happy to bring historians into the conversation whenever I can. And it's something that I actually did at Intel. So I brought in Mar Hicks to talk about the history of queer computing. I also brought in Cassadere to talk about the history of trans computing. And getting people in tech to think about how actually the thing that you're looking at and you think is brand new and shiny and full of innovation is actually connected to something that happened a long time ago that is similar. And we can kind of learn from the past to understand what these potential harms might be. And so something that came up a lot when I was at Intel, it was sort of the the sort of middle of the metaverse fervor. And people were very excited about the metaverse and had a lot of ideas about what it might look like and what it might do for innovation and business and the future of work. And, you know, talking about some of the issues around sexual violence or women being harassed in sort of metaverse spaces, it was like, well, you know, if you kind of took a look at people who were users and people who are researchers of Second Life, we're going back way further, you know, like we could go back to, you know, Julian Dibble's A Rape and Cyberface from 1993, talking about Lambda Mu. And so really beginning to frame sort of these problems about technology that look to be brand new and understand sort of the social dynamics and power structures that made them um, appear in different contexts. And so I think for me, just being able to really use examples from the past and from other areas when you're talking about a new technology and trying to assess potential harms is actually quite useful because it really is sort of bigger than, you know, just a few bad actors or, you know, people who need to be removed from a platform. And it also is sort of a bigger problem than companies just creating something intentionally harmful uh, to, to reap profits. But there's just, you know, obviously <laughs> we have a lot of bad things in our society. There's a lot of racism. There's still a lot of sexism, a lot of homophobia. There's just a lot of inequality. And to build things kind of without acknowledging that reality and without acknowledging these larger histories I think is when you really run into problems because, you know, these these things should be really obvious. It should not be hard to anticipate what some of the problems are going to be. Just a quick plug for folks who are listening to this episode to go check out Mars' episode of this show. We had a wonderful interview where she talks a lot about the importance of the present moment of technological production being informed by and thought through the narratives and the histories of the past. I want to ask you a question about an, a piece that you published recently in Wired. That piece is titled, Using Generative AI to Resurrect the Dead Will Create a Burden for the Living. The byline of that piece is, AI technologies promise more chatbots and replicas of people who have passed, but giving voice to the dead comes at a human cost. What are the specific concerns that you have about generative AI when it comes to environmental impact? And what are the human costs that you are talking about in that piece? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of preserving the data of the dead, it kind of gets at this larger kind of problem that's been very pervasive in the tech industry for quite some time, which is, you know, data is power. So therefore, for individual users, we're going to help you. Uh, we're going to collect as much data as we can about you. And we're also going to help you maintain your personal data forever. And so Google kind of had that that line of reasoning for, for much of its existence. But recently, it actually said that it was going to start deactivating the accounts of people who had been inactive for two years. Because there's some degree of recognition on the part of tech companies that, hey, wait a minute, you know, if we actually promise to maintain everybody's data in perpetuity, that's a hell of a lot of data, uh, given how much data people are creating. And that actually costs a lot of money. Like this stuff, like there is no cloud, you know? I feel like people in STS, you know, are always railing about like the the materiality of computing. It's like, no, it's the undersea cables, you know? No, it's like these things are material. They're not ethereal. But, you know, I think that just becomes even more obvious when you're talking about something like generative AI, which again requires 
even more compute power. And so the expansion of data centers to kind of feed the hunger and the desire for generative AI um, is, you know, a problem because it will have a massive environmental impact. But then the idea that you would then sort of maintain something like, you know, what you're going to maintain this sort of, you know, extremely powerful AI for all of eternity because it's actually a, like a simulation of your dead loved one. And so I think the ethics of sort of imagining that you're going to be able to perpetuate this kind of relationship with the dead through this kind of technology is also very misleading because these things will actually require, you know, system upgrades and software updates and maintenance and eventually they may no longer run and they may become obsolete and the technology itself may die. So thinking about the fact that many people would then undergo a second form of grieving after having experienced grief already. So there are all these sort of ethical questions around, you know, who should actually have the authority to uh, decide to create a simulation of a dead person through generative AI and who should be able to, you know, kind of maintain that relationship and control that relationship? And should companies or employers or estates be able to profit from the kind of simulated version of that of that dead person? And so that gets into like really thorny questions around not just, you know, kind of copyright, but also things like estate planning and, you know, kinship relations and also consent. So thinking about what it is that an individual really would have wanted and what their family members actually want versus maybe somebody else who decides to revive the dead person. And so I think, you know, the sort of general problem of creating, you know, AI versions of the dead, which is not a new problem, um, but just something that, you know, is sort of in the news a lot right now, particularly because of deep fake technology and because of a lot of uh, dead celebrities and such that have been revived for various specials. And so I think, you know, this sort of question of violation, and this is something that came out when Anthony Bourdain, when there was a documentary made of his life and the director made the decision to use a deep fake voice to have Bourdain narrate this letter that he had written. It was, it was his words, but the, the deep fake was just sort of seamlessly put into the documentary. Um, which is a bit uncanny, you know, to sort of revive the dead in that way. But it was also done without the consent of Bourdain's family. And so, you know, this is the kind of question that comes up a lot when we're talking about celebrities, but it's an issue for everyone. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, for actors uh, who are having their bodies scanned or models, anyone, academics who have all of their Zoom <laughs> recordings available, the idea that your employer or that somebody could kind of try to monetize your likeness after you die in order to, you know, prevent them from having to hire living people is actually a lot of what the sort of fantasy is behind this. And so just thinking about how this actually creates a lot of problems in the realm of labor on top of um, all of the other like terrible things that I just mentioned. Well, I want to dig into this a little bit and, and ask you to explicate a little bit more the links that you're making between labor and environmental damage and the broader context that you're talking about here of the attempts to preserve uh, data and in particular preserve the data of the dead uh, at all costs, and in fact, at a very high cost. I, I know that you've written very extensively about the way that socio-technical systems, um, particularly social media platforms and increasingly AI and generative AI, maybe changing the way that our culture thinks about and performs rituals around and navigates death. In your book, um, which you were just talking about, Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond takes up this inquiry. Can you help us better understand and, and maybe spend a little time digging into the link between the questions that you take up in the study and the current work that you're doing with the AI Impact Lab at Data and Society? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I really feel like you know, the problem of death is sort of, it, it's a very old human problem and it's a fairly universal problem. So um, despite what, you know, the transhumanists who tell us that we can upload our brains, no matter what they say, uh, death is definitely coming for everyone. And people have always had different ways of memorializing the dead. And the way that people treat the dead can also certainly reveal different sort of social relations and hierarchies within a society. 
And so, of course, you know, if we go back to like archaeology or something, we can look at the mortuary rituals around kings and queens versus commoners. You know, there's always a way to sort of understand the way that a society is structured through treatment of the dead. And so I find it really fascinating to look at the different ways that death kind of disrupts the original plan for a lot of technologies. So technologies like social media platforms that were built for youthful users who were at elite colleges primarily in the beginning, and the idea that they would somehow become spaces for memorialization, for long-term relationships with the dead, for mourning. Um, This is not something that was an immediate sort of use case for them. And so I think death is actually a very useful way to kind of begin to think about how something really obvious in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, death is definitely, again, you know, it's a universal thing and it's kind of everywhere and will come for us all. But it, it still is something that's very easy to overlook. And so it's just how could it be that every single company always forgets about death and then they forget about it repeatedly over time? Uh, and this is not an area that, you know, tech companies largely have focused on. This is not people don't have a lot of, you know, big UX teams devoted to death. You know, this is not something that is sort of the norm, even though it is something that happens all the time. So I think when we're we're talking about kind of the larger problem of ethics and technology, when we're talking about you know, um, how communities are going to be impacted, how individuals and their social networks are going to be impacted, that kind of relational aspect. That's something that I think is really an important lens for considering impact assessments for algorithmic systems overall, because we're really not just talking about the tech itself and, you know, auditing it to kind of understand is the tech doing what we think it's doing, but we're also trying to examine all of the social relations that are kind of clustered around the technology and what all of the potential downstream impacts are. And so I think, you know, death is one of those things that really helps you see a lot of those relationships and networks over time um, in a way that, you know, maybe other social things are not quite as uh, quite as rich. I think that death is an incredibly rich field site for really thinking about algorithmic impact. I want to talk about a word in your title, uh, that word techno-solutionism. How do you think about techno-solutionism as an ideology and as a practice and as a vision for how we move forward in in our society as a society? What does techno-solutionism and its cousin, techno-utopianism, get right? What do these terms and the visions that they represent miss or misunderstand? So I think there are aspects of techno-solutionism that can be useful. So, for example, if you're kind of attempting to build a technology and you notice that there's a particular pain point or a point of failure and you're able to make a small change in the technology itself and then it runs much more efficiently, um, in that case, yes, there may very well be a solution to a problem that is really just a, a technical fix and that will do a lot of good. But I think the larger problem is sort of this this common issue of, as you mentioned before, uh, where there's a problem that is very much a social problem um, that could be fixed by something that really has nothing to do with technology, and yet technology is kind of brought in anyway. But you also do have a problem where e- even the process that I described, right, where, you know, with AimLab, we're kind of helping uh, different groups and different organizations understand the the technology that they're that they're building and help them kind of develop relationships with the potential uh, communities that will be impacted by the technology. And so part of that um, part of that process is really about maybe taking information back to the technical team and improving the technology and you know preventing bugs from occurring or also mitigating any potential impacts that would be harmful. But another part of the process that really has nothing to do with technology is the the creation of relationships. And so if the idea is that the partners that we're collaborating with, the hope is that they will continue to be in dialogue with the different communities that we're engaging with. We're not, you know, wanting it to be a kind of one-off thing where 
you know, okay, so we we took information back to the technical team, we tweaked it a bit, and now we're done. The idea is that it should be something that continues and it should be a long-term relationship and process. And really, I would say that for a lot of the work that we're doing, that is the most important piece of it is really about the relationships. With techno-solutionism, I think the problem is that so often the focus the focus on technology kind of outshines all of these other factors and you can really miss the forest for the trees. And with techno-utopianism, I mean, I think it is better to imagine other futures. So I think that we can learn from, you know, feminist and black sci-fi traditions. If we could think about, you know, Afrofuturism, there are ways of imagining futures that are not in the vision of Elon Musk, right? Like there are all alternatives to that kind of techno-imaginary and so I, it would be a mistake to completely throw away anything that's possible with the imagination. And I, I think that, you know, sort of reimagining technology, but then also building it differently, these things have to go together. So I think it's great to have the imaginary of how things could be different. And then I think, you know, we really need to kind of dismantle the, the way that tech is currently being built uh, and deployed in order for that some degree of that kind of imaginary to be to be realized. And so, you know, for for me, I am definitely interested in sort of the magical and mystical and metaphysical qualities of technology. So I think that using technology to communicate with the dead is a thing that we've done as humans for a very long time. And you don't need to use a digital form of technology for that to happen. And so I would say that you know, I, I am really interested in sort of the transcendent qualities of technology. And I believe that people derive a real sense of connection and something sacred out of technologies that are incredibly mundane. So I would not want to dismiss that. I think that there is a certain sort of magical quality to technology that can be a good thing, that can be not sort of the fetish of masking, you know, unequal labor relations, which it also is. But I, I'm interested in sort of digging into the the other uses of technology that might kind of um, expand that. I think we have time for one last question. I teach a course on data and human values at UC Berkeley, and a lot of students there and elsewhere across college campuses and universities listen to this show. And I know that you come to data and society, as we've talked about, after many years as a professor working with students in the academy. Many of them are going to end up in the tech industry. What would you want them to know or think about or understand or reconsider as they move into their careers? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have to say, you know, when I talk to younger generations of people who want to go into tech, there is much more of an awareness of the potential problems. And people actually seem quite hungry to have some degree of training in things like STS and uh, critical technology studies in general. And so I think the the important thing is to, you know, read widely and sort of talk to people outside of tech. I would say the most important things are to understand the history of technology, understand the history of the tech industry. So look to organizers from the past. And that was something that I did with a number of my collaborators for the Tech Workers Coalition Teach-In, where we basically brought people from IBM Black Workers Alliance from the 1970s and a number of other activist groups that had been, you know, really prominent decades before, along with current activists who were trying to change things from within in the tech industry now. And it was really interesting to have people from different generations talking to each other. Or again, the reason why I brought Mar and Cass and to talk to colleagues at Intel, just a way of, you know, helping people realize that there have been activists in tech, there are people been doing this kind of work in coalition building with people outside of tech for a long time. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can kind of learn from people who came before you. And then the other important thing is to continue talking to people who are not in the tech industry. So not just on a kind of like interpersonal level, but also if you are interested in making tech more ethical, instead of just sort of, you know, taking one ethics class in data science or computer science, uh, really try to, you know, it, expand your relationship with different communities that you are around in your day-to-day -day life. So one example that I can point to is knowing some developers at really, you know, sort of large tech companies who take on volunteer positions working with 
say, middle schoolers in Oakland who want to learn how to design video games. And so volunteering your time or getting to know different kinds of communities, getting to know their concerns and being more sort of involved with issues where you live can also be really, really helpful. So, and I, I think that especially goes for those of us who live in the Bay Area. So how do you sort of make sure that you are firmly situated in a place and that you're not just sort of a, an interloper who spends all of your time only talking to other tech people? Thank you so much, Tamara. Thank you, Deb. <laughs>